Um, hello, Peter Wilkin. Welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Thank you, Gwen. Pleasure to be here. Essentially, I thought we could start with Orwell and then sort of your elaboration on the concept of Tory anarchism. Certainly, when I first became interested in this, it was Orwell that was the key figure because he was the first one to really set out the concept of Tory anarchism. Um, my interest in the subject was really that most of the characters in the book that I've written on the subject were people that um, I admired or whose work I enjoyed when, when I was growing up. And, mm. But it never occurred to me that there was a particular connection between them. And it was only subsequently when I began to read more into them that I began to see this thread where most of these characters have been described um, by someone else or either by themselves as embodying this idea of a Tory anarchist. So that kind of let, left me intrigued as to what this might tell us about a particular strand of British culture, popular and culture really. And um, so that led me back to Orwell. Now the, the interesting thing I think uh, with Orwell is, you know, if you look at his essay on Swift where he, he really first uh, addresses this idea, you can see in the way he describes Swift so much of Orwell himself as a mm -hmm. character. Um, many, many of the people that knew Orwell, his contemporaries, Richard Rees, um, you know, George Woodcock, people of that era, um, that they felt that, that Orwell really did have that kind of outlook. And indeed, for, for many years, I think up until really he went to Spain and was caught up in the Spanish Civil War, he tended to describe himself to people he met as a just a Tory anarchist. <laughs> now, whether he was saying that to provoke, I suspect knowing his personality from what I've read, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> and, and it was really Spain that led him to, I think, develop this idea that he was a, he believed in socialism, he said, because up until then, he liked the idea, but he didn't think it could ever really happen. But being in Barcelona, he, so he says, um, he thought for the first time socialism was, was possible. And after that, you see this character of George Orwell, I think, rather than Eric Blair, become more, more precise and developed. So I would say with, with Orwell, there's two strands to him. And I've written a, a, a paper on this, looking at or how can Orwell, well known in, as, a, as a democratic socialist, how can he be classified as a Tory anarchist? Because it seems to be you know, a paradox. Um, but he did, and he held to that view. Um, many Orwell scholars are actually very skeptical about this. I, I gave a presentation at a conference on Orwell uh, on this subject, and at the end of it, uh, the first question I got was, who are you to say that Orwell is a Tory anarchist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, he said it, yeah. and I just want to understand why he said it. And I think my, my view of it is that the, it's about that dichotomy between Blair and Orwell. The Blair, if you like, he characterizes the classic Tory anarchist background, um, you know, upper middle class, shabby genteel, the landless gentry and so on, not part of the ruling class, but part of the kind of upper professional classes, you know, scions of the empire and things like that. And, and that was Blair's uh, background. That was what he was. He went into the colonial civil service and uh, for that very reason. But there was obviously this tension within him 
um, as he came to reject the empire and colonialism and to analyze it in his essays. And, and this other part of him, George Orwell, the campaigning journalist and, and writer, begins to emerge. So there's an Orwell for me is the democratic socialist and Blair is the Tory anarchist. So that's, that's how I would, I think you can potentially reconcile this big contradiction in Orwell as a character. There's many ways into this, starting with this term Tory anarchism. Listeners to the show have a good concept of anarchism by now, and I've got plenty of UK listeners, but most of my listeners are from the States or Canada, and I don't know about the Canadians, but we Americans, we don't have Tories, right? So the uh, the, the the concept of Tory, can you can substitute conservative for it, but it's not precise. If you are an American and you are thinking of uh, Mitch Romney, uh, Donald Trump, John McCain, I don't think any of these people are Tories. Uh, and so what is, a, what is a Tory? Yeah, well, the classic tradition uh, of Tory and Whig in, in British politics dates back to the 18th century when, and, and as Orwell articulates in his writings on Swift, it's about the, the conflict between uh, the progressive political forces as opposed to the conservative forces who want to keep things as they are largely. So Tory effectively was a term of abuse, meaning thief. Um, so that, interestingly, uh, and so that's the origins of that particular uh, term. In, in terms of the USA, I mean, clearly the, the concept of a Tory anarchist in my work is an examination of that, that, that practice in, in Britain, but others have looked at it in other countries, you know, so in the US, figures like H.L. Uh, Mencken, for example, uh, mm -hmm. is often characterized in that way. Or in France, um, Celine, uh, the, the, the novelist. So I, the, I wouldn't make the case that it's necessarily just about what happens in British culture, although for, for me, that's my, my primary interest. So as you say, with those figures you mentioned, none of them would be Tories in, in any <laughs> conventional sense and, and conservatism I think as a political movement has become such uh, a strange phenomenon embracing so many different conflicting elements religious secular materialistic and so on um, that it is it becomes quite unwieldy I mean Evelyn War who I, I write about in the book said of conservative the problem with conservatism as a political movement is that it's never actually conserved anything <laughs> you know that th th there was a lack of there was a lack of conviction on the part of conservatives. And certainly if you look at that in the context of the characters you're describing, none of them seem remotely conservative. They may be reactionary mm -hmm. you know, in, in their views, but that's a different, a different matter, I think. But in the context of British politics, historically the Conservative Party would describe itself as the party of tradition, of patriotism. Um, of defending traditional institutions, practices from the family to the village pub, you know, that these, if you like, become foundational in the structure of British social life. Therefore, we need to treat them with caution. And therefore, we also need to make changes in society very cautiously because we, we don't know what we're going to disrupt or lose when we begin to overturn established practices and institutions. And that, I think, manifests itself a lot in the, the work of Tory anarchists who are always critical in particular of the state and the state's desire to, you know, uh, engineer a different kind of society. 
Uh, and so that's been a persistent theme, I think. And in that sense, there's a kind of conservative resistance to social engineering. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I I think the second episode of this podcast was about Tolkien, and he's a, oh. a much less satirical figure. I mean, most of the figures mm -hmm. that you discuss in your book are interested in in satire, but yeah. Tolkien really did want to conserve something, and he really mm -hmm. was opposed to the modern state, which he, you know, had all sorts of objections to. And so if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, I, I was trying to get at it from that very beginning, the way that Tory anarchist, maybe it doesn't totally make sense if we play it all out, but no ideology makes complete sense, but that there's, it, it really speaks to some impulses we have and impulses that, you know, a traditional leftist ideology and a traditional conservative or reactionary ideology can't really grasp. So someone who like Tolkien once described himself as an anarchist and wants to blow up the factories in the name of the forest while serving as a professor of, you know, old English or philology with a pipe in uh, a smoking room. He doesn't, he doesn't fit into our normal sense of left and right. And clearly this tradition that Orwell has identified also doesn't, doesn't fit there, scrambles our categories a bit. No, absolutely right. I think that it does. And uh, what you're describing with Tolkien, he's often, I think, viewed as a kind of conservative anarchist um, because of that very outlook. But in a way, some of the things you describe in there, the desire that Tolkien says about, you know, getting rid of the factories, that also manifests itself in aspects of British culture. You can look at people like, um, you know, William Morris, for example, had a very critical another, view. Another conservative anarchist in a certain way. Yes, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I, I think he always saw himself as a revolutionary socialist, but at the same oh, time, no, 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 no. He, he, he came through that tradition with William Blake, of course, who certainly enunciated uh, a rejection of uh, industrial society as being necessarily progressive. Mm -hmm. You can see, which isn't to say that Blake wasn't, in some sense, uh, enunciating the idea of making the world a better place. He clearly had visions about something like a kind of a socialist society, uh, but he was extremely skeptical and scathing towards industrialization, the pollution of the countryside, um, the the the, um, the abuse of the environment, uh, and the chaos and uh, pollution of big cities. In a way, if you if you trace that story back through Blake and Morris, to, we, we're we're right where we are today with climate change crises, the logical outcome of those very processes that these figures were critiquing a long time ago. Yeah, so I said I was going to start us with Orwell, but I can't resist where I've got us now because it seems like Godwin and Burke comes come next, right? Before before we get to Blake, and then we've got the birth of, you know, Kropotkin says that Godwin is the birth of anarchism. The conservatives say, uh, sorry, Kropotkin says that yeah, Godwin is the birth of anarchism. Conservatives say that Burke is the birth of conservatism, and Godwin was so influenced by Burke. Then you've got these two, these two traditions originating at the same time, both as responses to the French Revolution and perhaps both as responses to progressivism. And I don't find them easily separated, even though in so many ways they are different. They're, it's these two intertwined 
traditions in a way that I think we're not comfortable with. These yeah, days. I mean, the story about anarchism or conservatism as political ideologies is told in different ways. And I wouldn't claim to be, um, you know, giving you the definitive account, but my view of anarchism would be uh, if you go back to Godwin as, as a forebear, I suppose, and you could also factor in other figures like Thomas Paine, you know, that, who was certainly absolutely very much about freedom of the individual, a minimalist state, promoting uh, equality and, and, and social institutions. But um, for me, the anarchist tradition, when it develops really in the mid to late 19th century, that tradition seems to be one which comes for me, it, it follows on logically from a kind of an enlightenment view mm -hmm. about using science and reason and experiments. You know, anarchists are very big on social experiments historically, mm -hmm. building new communities or building little, little uh, ghettos where you can set up a school or something like that. And I see, for me, that that, that tradition that emerges and develops, I suppose, crystallizes in the 1870s, the first international and those splits between the, the kind of the Marxian wing and the anarchist wing, that tradition for me comes out of the Enlightenment. And, and, and it, it seems a logical development in the sense the Enlightenment is about questioning everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, no one questions everything more rigorously than anarchists. <laughs> and when, when they begin to do that, they actually turn those questions, not just on you know, traditional institutions in the state, but on capitalism and work and social life. Uh, and that, that tradition, it seems to me, is much more about the enlightenment and the idea that ordinary people have the power to understand the world and make it better. Whereas I think that the Burkean tradition that you describe um, is, for me, is the counter or anti-enlightenment, um, which is resistant to the idea that through reason you can rebuild and reorganize society. Do that at your peril, one might say. If you're a real Burkean conservative, be very careful uh, about how, how bold or confident you are in your claim to understand how society works. And that tradition, I think, can lead in different directions. It can lead to deeply reactionary viewpoints. You know, someone like the, um, the late Israeli scholar, Ziv Sternhell, who wrote a very good book the anti-enlightenment, um, he clearly traces from Burke right the way through to deeply reactionary forces in the 20th century, the roots of fascism, okay? Um, well, clearly that's very different to the, the anarchist tradition. Yeah. Does it have to go that way? No, not necessarily. I think that you're quite right. If you, if you look at Burke in another way, you can see anarchists like Colin Ward in the UK, yes. I'm familiar with Ward's work. He's, probably my biggest influence as a, an anarchist writer. And uh, you can see certain connections in the way Ward talks about people forming little practices, communities, clubs, associations, networks to, to fulfill the needs that they have, that they're mutually supportive of each other. And that's something Burke makes a point about the, the little flotillas bobbing on the water, <laughs> uh, which, which the, the things that make society function and the, you can sort of see that link but I think the fundamental difference between them would be that Burke 
he's a contradictory i mean burke was a supporter of irish nationalism and independence and american independence yeah, it's insane but, it's yeah he's so at the same he's, time well he was a whig if i recall correctly that's right, right? That's right so like if it's whigs versus tories then burke is on the wrong side both times i suppose so sorry carry I mean, on. It, but just no i was simply going to say so you could but at the same time he wanted i think as a reaction to the french revolution um to, to defend institutions for you know there's going to be a clear limit on the extent to which ordinary people can be brought into politics to take control and change society so i think there's a limit with burke as to how far that goes but the point you just made about burke being both on the one hand progressive and on the other hand reactionary well that's also orwell's point about swift isn't it mm -hmm. taking you back to where we started yes he says this exactly about swift that here's someone who on the one hand you know supports science and wants to solve social problems but on the other hand thinks that progress is kind of illusory and that in effect human beings are kind of condemned to repeat the same mistakes endlessly and that i think is um you can see that characteristic with burke but but for me i think so when i look at anarchism just to summarize i see the tradition as coming out of the enlightenment criticizing everything you know the rights of uh, of people um, being egalitarian and universal and that clearly isn't a Burkean view but I think it's the view that emerges generally in anarchism after the 1870s but there are of course other many variants within anarchism and I'm not claiming that my view is the only the only way you can go well I know I think that's I think that's roughly right and I think that there's places where you can find Kropotkin Morris you know and Burke agreeing in terms of the values of the 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 past and preserving them and then the place where Kropotkin is very different when he elucidates anarchism is this faith in in scientific progress which is a certain something that I wrestle with as uh you know it was a pre it was a pre-world war one like so many people in the late 19th century who had a faith in scientific progress after world war one that gets really uh more difficult to hold to hold on to and we can we can leave it at that unless you and return to orwell unless you want to add anything well, just two things on that. i would say um although anarchists embrace you can go back to bakunin in the in, in the first international anarchists kind of embraced science as a way of liberating uh working class communities through science, you can understand nature and society and challenge unjust institutions. But but they were never naive about science. Bakunin also mm -hmm. said, you know, quite clearly, um, you let's not put science on a pedestal mm -hmm. whereby it becomes the new deity. Just as Proudhon had said to Marx about establishing a new international, let's not tear down all conventions only to set up a new one in its place. Uh, and so I think in that sense, although anarchists have generally accepted the importance of science it's always been in a social context about changing the world and making it better so you look at kropotkin something like fields factories and workshops this kind of vision of uh not exactly utopia he's sort of saying look this is this is derived from things that people do but it can be a different way of organizing society more broadly um and that in a way, to me, that kind of synthesis of uh, a kind of a social theory and a, an understanding of science and industry presents 
um, a, a picture of a much more decentralized, environmentally sensitive uh, kind of anarchist society. And you, you can, again, I think there, there is that connection with someone like Kropotkin and Blake, you know, and going forward later anarchists, obviously like Murray Bookchin and so on, okay. who wanted to take up this tradition. So although, yes, anarchists respect the importance of science in understanding the world as a way of emancipating working class communities, I don't think that they deify it, not, not at all, any more than they deify anything else. You know, it's interesting that anarchism, there are no, as far as I know, there's no sex, there's no Kropotkinians, there's no <laughs> Bakuninians, yeah. you know, there's no Proudhonians, you know, anarchists, have. it's not like other variants of ideology where one might be a, I don't know, a Marxist, say. Um, that doesn't really happen with anarchism. Not that I'm aware of, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, mo it mostly doesn't, and I would certainly say it's not. It's not supposed to. Um, so let's let's come back to to Orwell, where we were supposed to stay. And I'm sorry, I carried this over. Oh, to no, it's probably me. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it was definitely me. Uh, so, I think getting at this this idea of Tory anarchism in Orwell gets to something that if you, uh, you know, if you're just in popular culture. I assume it's like this in the UK, certainly in the States, everyone, and I do mean everyone, is always describing their opponent's state interventions as Orwellian, right? Like, it doesn't really matter who is talking and what the other person is doing. If someone stands up and gives a speech and says, I would like the government to do this, you can find someone on the other side saying, oh, this is an Orwellian intervention. By Orwellian, they mean bad. They mean like 1984. And I think we have a temptation if we know a little bit more about Orwell when a conservative stands up and says, oh, look, the government wants to do this. It wants to make me use uh trans people's pronouns how orwellian we 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 sort of want to laugh at them and say you know that guy was uh, a democratic socialist but i think there's also a sense that as a tory anarchist his the fact that he's got a ready-made critique for governmental programs makes sense in other words it's not that incoherent that you can use orwell to criticize anyone's governmental policies if you understand these two sides of Orwell. And I wanted to see if you thought that is a way of making sense of how he's lived on as a, a someone who is accessible to, it seems like, every political tradition. Yeah, I mean, Orwell was very, not just in 1984, but, but in other writings, he was very aware and alarmed by the prospect of deepening totalitarianism. Clearly, his hostility to Stalinism was long established and was something that manifested itself in how he was treated in uh, by other socialists in the UK at the time. And he he wrote a review of uh, Friedrich Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, which you may be familiar with. And he, yes. although he's critical of Hayek, he does concede that there is a there's a concern here about how far the state's power can extend over society. And I think for someone like Orwell, his idea of socialism and the role of the state in that is a kind of a libertarian one, i.e. we need the state, but not doing too much. We need to make sure that health provision is national. We need to make sure that, you know, uh, air pollution 
is is uh, regulated nationally but he i think he's much more part of that libertarian socialist tradition and outlook and his concern about the, the extension of the state into social life i think would probably mean uh, that for orwell when he looks at socialism and the state and politicians that, that socialism is a, a cultural transformation in society it's not something that can be um, delivered by policy through the state. You know, elect this government, they're socialists, and then we'll all be socialists. I don't think Orwell's view of socialism was like that. Probably his view is more that, well, politicians, they can either help socialism or they can hinder it, but they can't make it. Socialism mm. will only come when the working class have decided they've had enough capitalism and they want something else. And that will come through them. So I think he's part of that tradition, which, you know, Marx actually said, didn't he, at one point, that the um, the emancipation of the working class will only be achieved by themselves. And I think Orwell's part of that tradition. So he's very suspicious, uh, certainly by the time he's writing in the 30s, he's deeply suspicious of the way in which language has become a form of manipulation and power, as we know, which is why the, the concept of Orwellian is so widespread now. And um, for Orwell, the way in which language is used in politics as a means particularly to scare people, to instill fear. So you see in 1984, you know, two-minute hate. Um, people around the telly worshipping Big Brother and screaming abuse. Well, that, that, that kind of idea in Orwell, which seemed perhaps at the time exaggerated, uh, now seems perhaps more prescient um, with each passing year. But Orwell, as a Tory anarchist, like all Tory anarchists, he's a contrarian. So in that sense, it doesn't matter what you say, he'll probably try and find a way to challenge it and take an opposite position, even if ultimately he moves back. If you think about Orwell's views on World War II, up until, up until the, the so-called end of the phony war, 1939 to 40, the kind of standoff between France and Germany, Orwell embraced pacifism. He was against the war. He said the war was a joke. You know, his essay inside the whale, we should just sit back and let this happen and then we'll come out the other side. And then, of course, he writes his essay denouncing pacifism yeah, because, he, you know, he says, oh, I had a dream last night and I realised that was all nonsense. But that's characteristic of Orwell, these abrupt, sudden changes in outlook, you know, and that's, that's also a Tory anarchist characteristic, I think, to be contrarian. And to say something in part because you're seeking to provoke a reaction. And so when Orwell's writing about language and power, he's acutely sensitive to the way in which people use it as a, a kind of a political tool. And I think in many ways, um, it becomes perhaps the key concern of his political writings. Yeah, and that again makes him... When it, do, when it does seem like so many people want to change the world by changing language, of course, this is a game that uh, left-wing people play. I mean, I, I mentioned trans people, but the whole, the whole set of concerns, so many of them around diversity, equity, and inclusion, this sort of progressive movement. I'm, I work in a university, you work in a university. Uh, you know, there's always these questions of what language are we using, interrogating terms, all this stuff. And of course, you know, calling people welfare queens, right, or making liberal an epithet or something like that. The conservatives are also trying to win the war 
of language. And so if everyone is trying to accomplish at least some part of their political views via shifts in language, then Orwell's critique of that sort of work becomes available to to all of us, I think. I, th I think that's right. And it also illustrates a tension um, in the way in which language changes in society, which goes back to the point I was making about Orwell's view on the state and socialism. You know, can you bring about socialism from above? Can the state actively intervene to make people socialists? You know, by regulating language, for example. Yeah. Well, I think Orwell's view will be no. That 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 changes changes in language tend to follow changes in habit and practice. Yeah. Uh, and that if you look in the UK now, and I, I think this is where the the culture war, as it's so called. Yeah. Um, that's where it's being fought out is that the, the, the right in politics don't like the fact that actually, you know, yeah, societies are still racist, but they're not as racist as they were 50 years ago. People don't say things that they would have said easily 50 years ago um, because we, we kind of know that it's wrong. And that, that isn't about censorship. That's, that's about the changes in people's values about how they relate to other people. Uh, but for the, for the political right, I think it's very important that they want to present that as a kind of censorship. But it's not. Language historically, like human societies, it changes. And what, what terms are acceptable at one period become rejected in, in a later period. And that seems to be what's, what's happened. And it seems to be what this fight is about. And what's interesting, I think, is that for the political right, they want to seize the mantle of being defenders of free speech. And uh, that's a, that is a shift because historically the right have not been defenders of free speech, they've been <laughs> opponents of free speech. And I, I think the reality is they still are. You know, what they're in, they're yeah. certainly not in support of freedom to protest in the streets <laughs> as a form of free speech. Um, so, but what they want is the right for people to say racist things, uh, that's free speech. Okay, and I think that's where on the left there's a real problem now, because some people on the left would say, yeah, okay, if racists want to say racist things, they should say it, and then we know you're racist. Others would say, actually, you can't say that because it, it's a form of harm. It hurts people, so you have to stop saying it. If you do, we're going to sack you or something like that. Yeah. And that, that's where the left, I think, is divided now. I, I completely do not accept that the right are uh, sincere in their commitment to free speech <laughs> no. any more than they're sincere in any commitment to the right to protest or anything like that. They're not. Yeah. But it's very convenient, I think, as a weapon with which to divide the left. And it's worked. And it will be interesting if Orwell were here as to where he'd stand on this. I'm pretty confident he would reject any sense of regulating language through the state or through institutions. I'm pretty confident that he would want to say language changes because people change yeah. in their communities, uh, and which I think has happened. There were things when I was young, and probably when you were younger, um, which people would say, which they're much more hesitant to say now. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, I agree that it would happen. I think it's good. I also, you know, I also think Orwell's critique fundamentally is correct. The, the easy example is much lower stakes than outright racism is, I, I teach at the University of North Carolina, and there was a campaign uh, about 20 years ago. I think it started about 20 years ago. Uh, a woman high up somewhere decided that there would nothing would ever be the freshman anything ever again. It would all be first year 
Um, so everything is first year. And I say first year, like, oh, I teach first year classes, et cetera. And then I had some of my students do, um, uh, they made they made videos and they interviewed their fellow students about topics around campus. And the first thing they said to the students was, hey, what year are you? And not a single student of the 30 or so first year students that were interviewed said, I'm a first year. They all said, I'm a freshman. Men, yes. women, everything. And so I just thought, you know, I have nothing against, I'm happy to say first year, I'll keep saying first year, but it didn't work. You know, like the fact that some dean decided that we don't say freshman anymore had absolutely no impact on the students' views. And so in that respect, that's not probably a good use of our of our energy, if that makes sense, our institutional energy. On the other hand, it doesn't, I mean, I certainly don't think it does any harm to call our classes first year classes. And I would be upset if a conservative said that we're doing something bad by doing so, but it just it simply didn't have any effect. And if you wanted to affect that change because you thought it was important, it had to be something besides an email sent out to all of the chairs. It has to come from below. Yes, yeah. I mean, in the UK, it's slightly different. The, the tradition is freshers and first years. So actually it's both, um, but it's not freshmen. That. That's, I always think of that as being a more fundamentally American yeah. uh, way of describing things but uh, in the UK it's slightly different but of course um, the role of language in institutions and the jargon that proliferates now that Orwell when he wrote his essay on the politics of the English language you know is quite clear about this unclear language reflects unclear thinking and probably that you're trying to hide something and more more broadly he saw um, you know that kind of language as being part of the 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 trend towards totalitarianism, speaking in ways which are opaque and unclear, confusing, and that people can't understand as a way of uh, trying to control people. So, you know, we see that on a very micro and small scale level, I think in all kinds of institutions, whether they're private companies or whether they're, you know, universities. I, I just, Graham, sorry, I, I haven't really talked about the concept of Tory anarchism and what I think it means. It does, it does, it does seem like we should talk about that, doesn't it? Since yeah, we're it does. heading towards the end. Yes, I was so conscious of, of actually not getting to that point. So maybe I should just give a brief summary of that. Thank, thank you for uh, hosting. Sorry about no, that. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, for me, when, I, when I've written about Tory anarchism in Britain, I see it as embodying a particular kind of character. Um, usually from an upper middle class background, which means wealthy, privileged, but not aristocracy, not the super rich, probably coming from the professions, colonial civil service, law, magistrates, the army. Um, and it's usually associated with characters who have a, both an aesthetic leaning in some sense, which lends itself perhaps towards satire or journalism, but also, um, people who are in some sense rebellious and willing to take a stand on things, hence the contrarianism. So there's a sense, as Orwell said of Swift, that the Tory anarchist is at war kind of with everyone. Um, and, and therefore, the Tory anarchist embraces some modern things, but at the same time, doubts that they can come through. He believes in progress or she believes in, pro well, actually, I say that, but there is an important gender issue here in that I think by and large, Tory anarchists have tended to be men. I don't 
when I looked into there were some them some characters I considered and rejected, like P.G. Wodehouse or Noel Coward, who have a certain resemblance. Um, but there were no women that's, that I could think that fitted this. And I think that's to do with the social background of so most wanted, of these people. I wanted to ask when I was reading that part of your book, and I don't know her very well, but does Dorothy Sayers fit this in, in any way? I, I know where you say that. I do, no, I mean, <laughs> she's a bit like Wodehouse. I think she's too nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you read Wodehouse, he's astonishingly funny, and his characters are wonderful. But you don't ever think any of them as being, if they're foolish, you know, if they're foolish like Wooster, they're still amiable and likable. You can still imagine having a cup of tea with them. But in the hands of a Tory anarchist, when they stick the knife in, they want to, they want to, mm. to cut. Yeah, and I don't think you would say that about people like Sayers or or Wodehouse or Noel Coward. They don't have the same. That's why I say a Tory anarchist. There's an element of risk involved and a certain edge. And uh, interestingly, on this, I I, I spoke with a, a character who you may not know called Roger Law, who's a um, an artist in Britain. And Roger Law was one of the people who created the puppets for a show called Spitting Image. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I, I it's very popular. No, in the mid '80s to the mid '90s, it was kind of um, You'll, you'll find it on YouTube. It was a hugely popular satirical show using specially made puppets to mock royal family politics <laughs> and so on. And Roger Law, uh, he was uh, a, a young man who was at university at uh, the same time as Peter Cook, who, who I think is a self-styled Tory anarchist. And he became friends. He said, I was seduced by Cook. He was a dandy. He was witty. He was urbane. He was sophisticated. He was brilliant. And he was great fun. And and I spoke with Roger Law a couple of times about what he made of Cook and his politics and being a Tory anarchist. And he said, well, part of it is Tory anarchists, they like they like to cause trouble and they like to arse around and, and, and put the knife in and see what happens. But he also, in this interested me, uh, he said, but you have to be careful because there's also something deeply reactionary at the heart of Tory anarchism. And I kind of puzzled about that until I began to look at people like um, Celine in France. I don't know if you've read any of Celine at all or know much about him. I, I have. I mean, I'm vaguely familiar. I know the name. That's about as far he, as I can he's go. Probably, bearing in mind this is France, he's probably the most controversial French writer of the 20th century. And to give you a flavor of why he's controversial, um, during the period of the phony war between France and Germany, um, the Nazis had a, a committee to look into uh, potential collaborators in post-invasion post France. And the only conclusion the report could reach um, was that the only figure in France that's a real Nazi is Celine. <laughs> so that's not something you'd necessarily want to put on your CV as a reference, but it gives you a sense of why Roger Law was saying, actually, you know, Tory anarchism is playful, it's mean, it's funny, it's provocative as a stance, but there's also something quite reactionary about it as well. And that, I think, is the misanthropic aspect of it, which Orwell locates in Swift. This sense that in the end, everything's rotten, we're pretty rotten, and no matter how hard we try to make things better, we're going to mess it up for that very reason. And I think that's, if you like, the big the black hole at the heart of Tory anarchism. 
Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I mean, it seems to me that that's where that's where Tolkien doesn't fit into this. Yeah. Um, There's a romanticism in Tolkien, isn't there? Yes, precisely, which might accord a little bit more with William Morris than yeah. than it does with yeah, George Orwell. Um, and then I, I do think, you know, you've you really hit on something, which is to say, and this gets back to the idea that everyone likes to, to throw Orwell around when they're critiquing their opponent. First of all, Tory anarchism is, is, it is, it is funny. It is sharp. It is smart. Um, and secondly, it, it is, even if it maybe wouldn't work like as a program, it certainly doesn't have a, a program. It is, uh, ev every social movement, every group has, uh, inconsistencies, hypocrisies, places where you can put the knife in and it mm. seems like when it comes down to it the tory anarchists greatest desire is to put the knife in and that's why anyone can pick up that knife yeah i think that that's right and to, to be clear for me tory anarchism is not in any sense an ideology i think i describe it in mm -hmm. the book as, as a stance a posture that one adopts in society becoming a public figure becoming a part of popular and public culture so that you can make that make that attack on the things that you think need to be attacked and usually it's directed uh not always but usually more often than not it's directed against those in power which of course historically is the real satirical tradition going back to juvenile um a depiction of decaying corrupt and decadent elites who have uh, ruined society and i think that that is a pers persistent theme in the work of most tory anarchists so it's not in any sense a political ideology it's a stance, it's a posture. I also think it's quite exclusive. I don't think anyone can be a Tory and I think it does reflect certain social characteristics, class, gender, this aesthetic quality, you know. Um, I think I, I have in the book um, a, a snippet from a TV series uh, called Monkey Dust, which I say has a family resemblance uh, to Tory anarchism. And in one episode on Monkey Dust, they're satirizing uh, a kind of uh diy manuals where you too can become a great author um overnight and then so and then the the heading for the advert is um um, um lit great literature anyone can do it you know and i don't <laughs> think that that's as true and i think that the point about tory anarchists as this peculiar eccentric form of contrarianism is that not anyone can do it but they can because they have that aesthetic edge and that ability to be heard in public, which goes with it, which enables them to, as you say, stick the knife in. Yeah, well, that was your phrase, but I'm I'm just borrowing it. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to say, you know, there's one more thing that I want to make sure that we talk about. I pulled up this quote. I just Googled it, so hopefully it's right. But there's a famous quote from The Road to Wigan Pier. Um, one sometimes gets the impression that the mere words socialism and communism draw towards them with magnetic force. Every fruit, juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. And I wanted to know if you think that this fits into the Tory. So there's this celebration, it seems to me, from Orwell of, and uh, when uh, Jacqueline O'Donnell was on the show talking about Oscar Wilde and how Oscar Wilde, you know, is a figure that Orwell 
perhaps could have or should have admired, but also Orwell didn't admire him in part because of the queerness. There, there it does seem to be a, a celebration of something very conventional. It's 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 a conventional working class masculinity that Orwell is celebrating against those, you know, fops who are, you know, drinking fruit juice and and calling themselves Quakers. And I'm wondering if that's the reactionary edge that you're talking about, but I wanted to get your thoughts. I think it is. It's also it's also about the provocation because it's that it's that it's going out into the public domain. He wanted to provoke socialists, I think, because he saw uh, the impact of Stalinism on socialist culture as being so damaging uh, that he wanted to do that. Um, but yes, that quote is a very famous one. It fits entirely the Tory anarchist side of, of Eric Blair, I would say. And the interesting thing is that the people, and, and I should hasten to add, Orwell had his own prejudices. He was aware of them. You know, he knew he was, uh, um, in some sense, anti-Semitic, although he, he didn't want to be, but that reflected the class he was from. He knew he was unsympathetic to homosexuals. Yeah. So he was aware of those prejudices, but nonetheless, he had them. And when you've got them, it can be difficult, as we all know, to get rid of them. Um, but, but one interesting aspect of Orwell's character, I think, is, as you say, he set these kind of fops up to demean them and attack them. Um, and he notes it in a number of places that when he actually meets figures, uh, Stephen Spender, for example, who was a British poet, um, who Orwell savaged, uh, George Woodcock, um, Alex Comfort, pacifists. These are the kind of people he's dismissing and sneering at, sandal-wearing, muesli-munching, um, you know, Quakers. But he said, you know, once I met them, when we sat down and had a, a beer and a chat, I found I really liked them. And that, I, I think that's interesting. That the, you know, that, so there's a sense in which it's, it's always easier to attack an abstraction than it is a concrete person. And Orwell, in his experience and his writing, he kind of manifests that. And he was big enough to be able to say, yeah, I said these bad things about people like Spender and Comfort and Woodcock and others, but actually I became good friends with them. And I think that that's, that shows the kind of, the sense in which Orwell's contrarianism was for public consumption much more than it was about what he actually came to believe about these characters. Okay, but yeah, he did, he did address a kind of, I suppose, in, in his own way, a kind of a sense of a conventional masculinity that he thought was being more true to working class culture than this kind of middle class eccentrics or, or uh, you know, um, fops, as you describe it. Yeah, I mean, I... I'm sympathetic. I mean, I'm sort of tying myself in knots just trying to think through this. I'm sympathetic to the idea that so many of us who are, you know, on the left or in the left in in universities can get so caught up in language and in cultural concerns and categories that we can kind of miss what the people who are are actually you know, at the bottom of the system really need. I also think that, you know, there's a long tradition in socialism of setting aside various groups as not really counting and not really, you know, mattering. And, you know, the women, the Jews, the homosexuals, whatever, they're not real socialists, they belong over there. And I, I don't view that as, 
as hypocritical. These are these are two things that must both be taken into account of. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we have the Tory anarchists, because they can they can point this sort of thing out to us, even if, as you say, they're certainly not going to give us any sort of uh, route forward or any sort of synthesis that will let us make something. Yeah, I mean, I, on, on the first point about universities and, and language, and, and um, as you say, people on the left in universities, it's never occurred to me that socialism will, will be achieved through universities. It's always seemed <laughs> to me that it's going to be it's going to be a manifestation of what working class people want. They're the majority, after all. And if they don't want it, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, but the important point is precisely about debate and I had say I wouldn't say propaganda, but but um, being able to articulate ideas as to why it would be a step forward from where we are. Um, in terms of diversity and, and socialism, as well, I think you're right that historically, certainly the way socialism evolved tended to be much more rooted in a very male sense of the labour movement and political parties, often dominated by cliques, and that's still the case in many instances. Um, but I would assume that for for most, you know, most socialists should record certainly in the libertarian socialist tradition would want to recognise the importance of diversity and difference. You know, that a good society is one where people, you know, pursue their particular interests and differences wherever it takes them. That's what makes society interesting, uh, as opposed to this idea that Orwell articulates in 1984, that Evelyn Waugh uh, describes in Love Among the Ruins, that the state can engineer a particular kind of character and person and in effect create um, subjectivities rather than allow people to produce them through their own experiments and their own movements and so on. And I think that's an in, that, that aspect of the libertarian socialist tradition that Orwell is a part of, I think, about social experiments, however much he disparages sandal wearing, music munching, <laughs> eccentrics, nonetheless, he's also that himself. He does that too. So I think that's, that's, um, that is a tension in, in the kind of socialist tradition. And the good thing about Tory anarchists in general is that they target everyone. They do critique everyone, yeah. including, including their own failings. Yeah, excellent. I mean, uh, as we're heading towards the end of our time, I was thinking about asking you something along the lines of, you know, what, what is what is Tory anarchism good for? Uh, and it seems like you've sort of given given that answer. I mean, I I want to suggest that it's certainly, it's it's a lot of fun. Obviously, if you you know if George Orwell, Jonathan Swift, and Monty Python are are Tory anarchists, then obviously they're the Tory anarchists are are funny, um, and enjoyable. But then it also seems like they the the critical role they provide is 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 vitally important and also uh, now i'm just sort of parroting you and also da- dangerous in a certain way or it's dangerous to get too caught up in it it is if if you embrace the misanthropic aspect that's at the heart of it then certainly for progressives mm. um that that's a problem you know uh and i, I think orwell was aware of that that's why you, when you read his his personal memoir on on Spain, it, it does seem like he had some kind of real revelation there when he sort of said, well, wow, socialism is actually a real thing. I thought it was just a story we were telling each other to keep ourselves warm in the dark, but it's real. And you can sort of see that uh, shift in him, I think, 
as a consequence of that. But in general, amongst Tory anarchists, I think there's a much more sardonic tone to their work, which kind of says, <clears throat> you know, look, we're all we're all gonna mess up, make mistakes, we're all pretty and at heart it's worse than that. You know, as Roger Law was trying to alert me to, there's something much more reactionary as well, which says people are pretty rotten. But we can still laugh at them. That's good. <laughs> but so that, that that's the danger I think. It's useful because you know any free society has to be able to tolerate dissent, criticism, satire, and so on. And they certainly give us that uh, in a way which is, and this is important, I think, very popular and, and has, has reach. And without the Tory anarchists, it would be very hard to find the satires of the Tories that we that we really need because progressive satires of Tories tend to not be you know on the mark one of the, one of the marks of satire doesn't work unless you really get the thing you are satirizing so the progressives can't satirize the Tories not really and mm. the uh, the Tory the institutional Tories the non-anarchists are not going to satirize themselves yeah. and so the Tory anarchists are performing this vital vital function it, it's true and I, I think we live in an age now where <clears throat> satire is a pervasive part of popular culture television shows chat shows quiz shows game shows everything is satire and when you watch it you feel that the, the meaning of satire has been completely eroded mm -hmm. and lost there's no edge to this you know and you bear in mind always the limits of satire as peter crook once said oh yes yeah, satire is such a powerful weapon that's why the Berlin cabarets managed to stop the rise of the Nazis in the 1920s. <laughs> you know, and that's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, it, but, but, but you feel somehow that contemporary satire is very manufactured. And you wouldn't say that about Tory anarchists. They are much more autonomous and independent, and they would resist the idea of being manufactured and sold by, uh, you know, a kind of corporate uh, institution, I think. Whereas a lot of contemporary satire, it just is okay you can almost see the the people that are producing the show sitting around the table going right right folks we've got to get this show saturday night 30 minutes it's going to be a satirical show weekly news headlines who do we get on it oh yeah these four people they're all hot you know they cover the bases let's get them on <clears throat> they can do a few puns one-liners it, it, it seems very formulaic Whereas I think the Tory anarchist approach to satire was to be resistant to formula and to try and challenge it. Okay, excellent. Ar ar artisanal satire from the, yeah, from the Tory so. anarchist. That that's, uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that brings us back to William Morris. All right, Peter, this was wonderful. Anything else you would like to add? Um, no, no, I think uh, we, we've covered a wide range of things here. Obviously, we could talk endlessly, but I don't want your viewers to switch off. Uh, as you, you say, they might do. So uh, yeah, we can stop there. And if you receive massive hits for this show and want to follow up, you can always get back to me and that will be absolutely yeah. yeah, I mean, massive hits, I don't know. But a follow-up someday sounds sounds lovely. Um, I'd love to dig into Evelyn Wall and, and all sorts of things. And maybe I'll try and uh, convince you in the future that Dorothy Sayers really, I mean, I do think there's something misanthropic in, in Dorothy Sayers if you read enough of her, but we'll, we'll we, we can say this right. Maybe day. I need to look at her and thank you for that steer. I, it's, um, it's worth me going back to that. She's brilliant, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Peter. Such a pleasure. 
you yep for me too take care Grant you too bye now bye <laughs>